Good morning. As she said, my name is uh, Brandon, and we are in a series uh, that we're calling Easter and the Emotions, where we take a few of the normal, natural human emotions that you and I live with, and we look at them out of the Psalms in light of Jesus' resurrection. And last week, we talked about fear. This week, we're talking guilt. Guilt. So what is guilt? Uh, Guilt is what we feel in response to something that we have done or something we have left undone. It can be something we've done or something that we have left undone. It's less about who I am, more about uh, what I've done, something that I've done or undone that leads to guilt and regret. To illustrate both, it's not uncommon for me uh, to overreact and to snap back at somebody and then to have to apologize, ask for forgiveness afterwards. In our home, it is not an uncommon conversation for me to sit down uh, with my wife and ask for forgiveness. Uh, she thinks we should have that kind of a more than we do. Um, uh, or with my kids saying, hey, uh, daddy's really sorry. Daddy's really sorry. Do you forgive me? But there's also things left undone. So my, uh, out of my life, uh, my, my dad passed away about, uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, and I live with a lot of regret over things I didn't say to him when I had a chance. Uh, I live with a lot of regret over uh, guilt over the nature and lack of relationship really from my teenage years on and that, that cult phase, just this low-grade, ongoing regret in my life. I'm sure that if we all sat around, we could highlight one or two obvious things uh, in each of our lives to say, yeah, I, have, I feel a lot of guilt over that and, and I've got a lot of regret over uh, this. So it's easy to identify particular things that we might feel guilt and regret over. But here's the, here's the thing. In our culture, and our context, where we live, we don't innately think of ourselves as guilty. Like We don't innately think, I'm a guilty person. Right? Think about our courts. We are, what, innocent until... There we go. And for the record, that's a good thing. I don't want to live in a culture where I am guilty until proven innocent. But it illustrates that we don't instinctively and innately think of ourselves as guilty people. We innately, instinctively think of ourselves as innocent people. We don't think of ourselves as guilty. It's why one of our pastors, when he became a Christian, he said, uh, or someone said to him, now that you're a Christian, God forgives you. And his response was, for what? For what? I, I don't know what I've done. What for? So we don't think of ourselves as innately guilty. We might think of ourselves as innately depressed, innately anxious, innately angry, but not necessarily innately guilty. But one uh, pastor, theologian said this. uh, He said, so much of what we call depression, anxiety, anger, if you go down and look underneath, if you get into it, if you lift up the hood and you look at the engine that sits inside, he said, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find a conscience on fire. You're going to find guilt. You're going to find guilt. His point was this, it's not that guilt's not there, it's just that we're not aware of it. What we identify as anger, anxiety, etc., often not universally and not uniformly, but often has guilt sitting underneath it. Guilt often functions like, um, like rivers in Colorado where you will see the river and then it goes underground and reappears somewhere else. You can be standing on the land with river running underneath you. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not there just because you can't see it. It sits there, river flowing uh, underneath you. But for some of us, for some of us in this room, guilt is not a river that we can't see. 
Guilt is not a river that has gone underground in our life, is it? Some of us in this room have been swimming in the river of guilt for decades. Some of us are fully aware of what we have done, what we've left undone, and the river of guilt has come to the surface in our life. Some of us in this room are fully aware of the guilt in our life. So, whether you are someone for whom the river of guilt is still underground or whether you are someone for whom that river has come to the surface and you have been swimming in it for decades, I have good news. Psalm 51 is generally considered, generally considered to be the best passage in the Bible for understanding guilt and learning how to deal with it. It's a psalm about a man named David. David who had done a particular thing in his life that he was guilty of. A heinous thing, as we'll see. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to ask three questions. One, what did David do? What was he guilty of? Two, how did he respond? And then three, what did he ask God to do? So what is he guilty of? How does he respond? And then what does he ask God to do? And so let's begin with what is he guilty of? And to answer that, we need to start with a title to Psalm 51, the title that goes like this. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. See, the setting for Psalm 51 sits back in 2 Samuel, and the, the scene goes like this. The story goes like this. David was the king of Israel. He was the king. The men were out to battle. Soldiers were off fighting the war. David is back at his home. He's walking around at the roof, and he looks over, and he sees a woman bathing. And so he calls the woman over. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. And now he's got to deal with this thing that he's done. And so the first thing he tries is this. He tries to deceive her husband, a man named Uriah. That doesn't work. So long story short, he has Uriah killed. And for a while, David thinks he's gotten away with it. David is going about his life, waking up, going to bed, thinking, I have pulled one over. I have gotten away with this. And then one day, one day a man named Nathan comes in. And in 2 Samuel 12, this is what it says. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said it to him. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought up. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he, the rich man, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was kindled greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the man. You are the man who has done this 
thing. David has been found out. David's guilt is sitting right in front of him. David, who slept with this woman, got her pregnant, then had her husband killed to cover it up, has nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. He has been found out. David, he knows, Nathan knows, when Nathan came to him and said, you are the man. David has been exposed. He has nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. The question is, when the dust settles, when he's able to see, how does he diagnose it? When David looks back on what he did, how does he diagnose it? For the answer to that, let's pick it up in verse 1. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Have mercy on me. Cleanse me from my sin. Wash me thoroughly. Wash me thoroughly. And then when he diagnoses what he has done, his diagnosis goes like this. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Now, here's what's interesting. David slept with another man's wife, got her pregnant, killed her husband to cover it up. And then he turns and he says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. How can this be? Tim Keller, a retired pastor in New York, summarized it like this. He said, how can he say against you only have I sinned when he has killed someone? It is because sin is like treason. If you try to overthrow your own country, you may harm or kill individuals in the process. But you'll be tried for treason because you have betrayed the entire country that nurtured you. So every sin is cosmic treason. It's overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. See, when he diagnoses his root issue, his root issue is cosmic treason. The sin beneath the sin beneath the sin beneath the sin is cosmic treason. It is sin against God. The root issue for David is that he is guilty of sin, sin against God. His root issue is that he is a sinner. And in this sense, David's root issue is our root issue. His root problem is our root problem. So it's probably worth defining sin here. There's a definition that I think might be helpful. Sin is breaking the law of God and trampling on the heart of God. Breaking the law of God and trampling on the heart of God. And I know that some, some of you in here, uh, heard the word sin, and you thought, man, that's just, it's a really old-fashioned term. That's a really old-fashioned, outdated kind of term. Isn't there a more modern word that we can use, a more modern term to capture the idea? Well, you're right, it is an old-fashioned word, but so is gravity. Just because something is old-fashioned doesn't make it untrue. Doesn't make it untrue. The way the Bible describes sin is it's like a river that runs through all of us, and every now and then that river comes right to the surface in our life. For David, it came right to the surface when Nathan looked him in the eye and said, you are the man. Nowhere to hide, nowhere to go. The river has come. And David knew what I have done was horrific 
and at its root, it was cosmic treason. So the question is, how does he respond? How does David respond? When it comes to the surface, how does he respond? And it starts with self-awareness. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I know my sin, my sin is ever before me. I know my sin, it is ever before me. This is a picture of self-awareness, but we need to talk about self-awareness. We need to talk about where self-awareness leads, because some of us in this room are very self-aware, and it is our self-awareness is the, that leads us to have three to four drinks a night. It is our self-awareness of what we have done, what we are guilty of, that I can't sleep at night, I can't live with myself, but if I can just get to the fourth drink, I can feel better about myself and I can sleep. For some in this room, self-awareness is why what we call work ethic is really just us trying to avoid the people we've hurt the most. For some, self-awareness is the root of our anxiety, fear, anger, you fill in the blank, but it's I know what I've done, I know what I'm guilty of, and if anybody else knew this. And so I've got to spend my life making sure nobody else knows what I have done, and that just festers anxiety and fear in our lives. So where does self-awareness lead for David? Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, where self-awareness leads David is to a place of honesty, not avoidance. To create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. It leads him to honesty, not avoidance. But here's what I find to be really interesting with this little text. See the word right in there, renew a right spirit within me? Uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, uh, translated to English for us. The word right is a Hebrew word that carries a range of ideas. We call it an elastic term. One of the ideas that it communicates is the idea of being steadfast, of being steadfast. And if you go back to how he opened the, the psalm in verse 1, he opened it like this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Different Hebrew words communicating the same overlapping idea. Why did David do that? Here's why I think David did that. Here's what we see in David's honest confession. What he is saying is that my heart is not in line with yours. Bring my heart back in line with yours. Renew my heart to be in alignment with your heart. Bring my heart back to your heart. And I'm wondering if his recognition that my heart is not in line with yours, oh God, I need you to renew a right heart within me. I, I'm wondering if that's not a confession that some of us in this room today need to be confessing. I'm wondering if we don't need to just pause right here, stop, and collectively a few of us just confess with David, renew a right spirit within me. Bring my heart back in line with yours. See, from this posture, from this self-awareness leading to honesty, honesty with himself, honesty with God, David can live into what I want to call a holy regret, a holy regret, where David is able to say, deliver me from blood guiltiness, verse 14, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. 
See, there is a kind of regret that just leads to the easing of our conscience. And then there is a kind of regret that leads to us opening our mouth and it bursting forth in song. There's a kind of regret that just helps me sleep at night when I regret what I've done. And there's a kind of regret that leads me to open my mouth and sing about God. This is a holy regret that we see in David's life. And one of the things that I love as we follow this narrative in Psalm 51 is that when we look at David, there is no spin. There is no spin. Like, he's not twisting it. There is no, uh, oh, listen, Nathan, or oh, God, I get what I did was wrong, but she was bathing right in front of me. Like, what do you want a brother to do? There's none of that. There was no spin, not for himself, not with others, not with God. When he was found out, he didn't just try to spin it. David's response responds with self-awareness, honesty, and a holy regret. But here's the thing. David knows that he needs more. David knows that he needs more than simply than simply to regret what he's done. He needs more. He needs his guilt taken away. And so what does he ask God to do? Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This is David asking God, cleanse me completely from my sin. Purge me from my sin. I want complete cleansing. I want purity. Cleanse me from my sin, O God. Which is not a foreign concept in the Old Testament. Isaiah talks about it like this. He says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you open a dictionary of biblical imagery and you look for the definition of scarlet, it opens like this. Scarlet, red, the color of blood. Scarlet, red, the color of blood. Your sin is like scarlet. It is red like crimson. And it will be made whiter than snow. It will be made like wool. How? How? Answer, through the blood of another. But David knows there's a problem. David knows that there is a problem. He knows that they have a sacrificial system that is insufficient to cleanse the human heart. That they had a sacrificial system where um, animals would be sacrificed in place of people's sins, and that was insufficient to cleanse the human heart. It's why Hebrews says that for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That the animal sacrifice was not powerful enough to purge, cleanse, renew the human heart. It was not capable of doing what he is asking be done. The sacrifice of bulls and goats were not enough to change, to wash, to cleanse the human heart, but there would be. But there would be another who a few hundred years later would come as a man who would be a lamb, a lamb that would go and die on a cross. And when he was on the cross, in the moment that he was dying, this is what it says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange of the gospel. This is the great exchange that he got our sin, we get his righteousness. He got what we deserved, we get what he possesses. That on the cross, Jesus became guilty so that, innocent, so that guilty men could become innocent. This is why David can cry out 
deliver me and I will sing of your righteousness. That because of the cross of Christ, we are not just innocent, we are also righteous. You have it in him. And it's why we can cry out and um, affirm with the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, which by the way, you need a faith that transcends centuries. That we can say with Heidelberg, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death. It's my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid all my sins with his precious blood. Did you hear that? Fully paid. Fully paid. Hey, guilty ones. Fully paid. When he says fully paid, what they mean by that is we look back on the Bible and we clearly see fully paid. If you want to know the Greek translation, when you find it being paid, it means to be paid. All of it. Fully paid. Which means, which means you don't have to spend your life blame shifting. We are professional blame shifters. And you don't have to spend your life blame shifting. You know why? The blame has already been shifted from you to Christ on the cross. And so when confronted with something that you have done, you don't have to blame shift and pivot towards somebody else. You can own it and be honest about it because the blame has already been shifted from you to Christ on the cross. You don't have to spend your life blame shifting. Yes, you have fumbled some things in your life. So have I. They might be too many to count in this room and fully paid, which means you can be guilty and accepted at the same time. You can be guilty and accepted at the same time because of the great exchange of the cross. Fully paid. You know what else it means? It means the Father does not regret sending His Son into the world to die for you, and the Son does not regret dying for you. The Father does not regret you. Jesus does not regret you. Jesus was guilty on the cross, but His guilt doesn't lead to regret over you. God does not have a list of regrets with your name on it. Jesus became guilty on the cross, and yet he does not regret why he died, which was you. Some of you, you need this to sink deeply into your soul that the Father does not regret you. Some of you look at your life and you have a thousand things you regret and you are spitting your life running from all of them. And you need to hear that because of what his son did, the Father does not regret you. You are not a regrettable member of his family. You are not the one that the Father says, messed up on that one, but it's too late. The Father does not regret you. You might regret you. The Father does not regret you. Jesus does not regret dying for you. And if that sinks deeply into your soul, if that can sit in the recesses of your soul, you can become self-aware, or in the words of David, your sin can sit ever before you, and it doesn't have to lead to self-loathing. You can be fully self-aware and not self-loathing.
loathing. You can be self-aware and know that God is cleansing you, he is renewing you, and he is doing it right now. Right now, as we sit together and go through Psalm 51 together, and then as we come to the table together, God is renewing you right now. One of our pastors, Dodds, said, we are not going to be the same men and women today as we will be in 40 years. We are not simply who we are. We are being made new. You can be self-aware and it lead to honesty. Honesty with yourself, honesty with others, honesty with God. You don't have to hide. You don't have to spin who you are. That honesty is part of the process of being made new. And you know what else you don't have to do? You don't have to work like crazy to avoid the people you've hurt the most, and you don't have to numb yourself to get through life. You can be honest, and that can lead to a life of holy regrets, a regret over what you have done that does not lead to despair, but a regret over what you have done that leads to opening your mouth and exploding in worship, exploding in song. You want to know one reason we value emotional engagements in music on Sundays is because it is just the, it's the response to the grace that we have. It's what happens when you realize I am guilty and Jesus has stood in my place and now I have his righteousness. You just open your mouth and you sing. And I know that we all have if we sat around, we could list the thousand things that we regret. I know that while I gave you two kind of, I don't know, easy, I don't, it's not surface examples, but whatever those two examples were I gave you, I, I could give you a thousand more. Listen, I can, I can Rolodex nights in college that I still have burned into my memory that I wish were not there and I feel guilt and regret over. I assume I'm alone on that. It's very uncomfortable. But I'm sure we could all line out a thousand things that we feel guilt and regret over in our life. I know that. But I also know this. I know that we can together look back at the great exchange of the gospel in Christ and say, thank you for delivering me from that. And that leads us opening our mouth and bursting forth in praise. We can live lives marked by self-awareness, honesty, and holy regret, and our lives can be spinless lives. We can be lives where we don't spin ourselves before one another. We can live lives with regret that do not lead to spiraling. But here's how I want to close the sermon. I want to close the sermon where David closes the psalm, because at the end of the psalm, David does something that I just find to be astounding. Verse 18 and 19 he says, do good to Zion, think the people of God, in your good pleasure, and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in your right sacrifices and burnt offerings and holy burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is a psalm written in response to a man who slept with somebody else's wife, got her pregnant, had the husband killed, and then got found out. This is a psalm in response to the guilt that he has over what he has done and his effort at responding to that. And did you see how he finished the psalm? He finished the psalm praying for others. Is that not astounding? That he finished this psalm 
opening his mouth and praying for others. See, there, when self-awareness leads to honesty and honesty leads to holy regret, here's what it does. It produces hope not just for yourself but for those around you. See, this, this psalm is a picture and a story of a man who in his guilt did not go down the road of despair, but it went down the road of self-awareness, honesty, holy regret that produced hope. Hope not just for himself, but hope for those around him. I pray this can be us. That we can be a people who are aware of the guilt of our sin, aware of the cosmic treason in our life and the way that it is manifested in our lives, that we can be aware of the guilt in our life, and that guilt doesn't lead to despair, but it leads to hope. Hope not just for us, but hope for one another. Hope that those around us might experience the goodness and the grace of the gospel about a guilty man, who, an innocent man who became guilty, so that guilty men and women can become innocent. Not just innocent, righteous. pray that's us. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are brothers and sisters, men and women all around us who look back at our lives and we've just got mountains of regret. Just one guilt after another after another. I pray that we could follow David's example here and that David's example would lead us right to the grace of the cross that we might experience, that we might live into the hope that he found the hope that he has, the hope that we have in Christ. For those, for those of us who wrestle with, am I even forgivable? I pray that the overwhelming mercy of what Jesus did in our place would just drown that out. Drown it out. We ask in Christ's name, amen.